Sometimes in the past, when I was preaching a homily on this gospel, I would ask for a volunteer to stand up, but I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to ask any of you to do that now. And once the volunteer stood up, I would ask him this question. Have you stopped stealing from the collection basket? Yes or no? Just yes or no, have you stopped stealing from the collection basket? Right? So you can realize that's an, a very unfair question. They say yes. That means that at some point in the past, they were stealing from the collection basket. To say no, it means they still are stealing from the collection basket, right? Uh, and in a similar way, uh, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus with a question that if he answers yes or he answers no, he's going to get in trouble. So if he says yes, it's lawful to pay the tax to Caesar, then the Jews are going to consider him a traitor, you know, because they consider the Romans to be unjustly occupying and oppressing them. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, then the Romans are going to say that he is uh, fomenting rebellion. Right? So he doesn't answer their question directly. But in saying, repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, he is acknowledging uh, a certain authority that even a pagan government, like that of the Romans, had. And authority is always connected to responsibility. So some of the responsibilities of civil government are to maintain order, such as having laws against theft and murder. And actually, the Romans were very good at maintaining order. Another function of government is to facilitate commerce, for example, by providing currency. And the Romans did that very well. Another function would be to uh, facilitate transportation through the building of roads and other infrastructure. And the Romans were very good at that as well. And so, these are legitimate functions of government, and people have a duty to support them with their taxes. And indeed, St. Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome, told them to be subject to the governing authorities. That the governing authorities are acting as administrators of God's justice. But Christians have always recognized, and this is suggested in Jesus's, the second part of Jesus' response, that there are limits to government authority. And those are limited especially by God and God's laws. Right? Because government is derivative. They get their authority from God. So we should never follow a government law that contradicts divine law. So Jesus, you know, to answer the question, he had them hold out a coin and he asked them whose image is imprinted here. And he could have had one of them stand up and say, pointing to that person, whose image is imprinted on this person? What's the answer? God. Remember Genesis? God makes them male and female in his image, right? He imprints his image. And so what? Repay to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God is our whole selves, right? God only is the one who is due worship and absolute obedience. Now, we have this misconception that, uh, you know, the Romans were always persecuting the Christians until the beginning of the fourth century, and that's not really accurate. There was sporadic persecutions at different times and different places in the Roman Empire, uh, but for much of that time, Christians were able to spread the faith and to build up the church. Uh, probably the worst persecution was uh, right around 300 AD under an emperor named Diocletian. It lasted for about 10 years, but it did not extinguish the church. In fact, the church was able to continue to grow. And when Diocletian died, the church was 
tolerated. In about 300 AD, historians estimate about 10% of the population of Rome were Christian, but Christianity was still spreading very quickly. And then there was God working behind the scenes to bring about a, a much more favorable situation for the Christians when a man named Constantine, have you heard of him? You should if you're in a Western civilization. Uh, he was in a battle for the throne of Rome and he had a vision that he should, he should fight under the sign of Christ. And so he had his soldiers put the Cairo on their shields. You see a version of the Cairo there. It's kind of an X with the P, the monogram for Christ. And they won this battle of Milivine Bridge. And so uh, Constantine began to favor Christianity. And I think of that episode in history as being related to an episode in the history of Israel, the history of the Jews, of which our first reading was about. Our first reading, we have the, the Jewish prophet Isaiah is praising the pagan king of the Persians, King Cyrus. And why is he praising King Cyrus? Well, you have to remember that in the sixth century, 600 years before Christ or so, Babylon destroyed the kingdom of Judah and took many of those people as captives to serve them in Babylon, right? But as it is with kingdoms of the world, they come and they go. And Cyrus led the Persians against the Babylonians and defeated them, and he was favorably disposed to the Jews. He let them return to their homeland, and he even decreed that they should rebuild their temple, and he even contributed money to rebuild the temple. And in fact, Isaiah um, says that, you know, he says, Cyrus didn't even know it, but God, the God of Israel, the one creator God, had chosen him, had elevated him to that position so that he could do this good thing for God's people. Now, throughout history, Christians have related to governments in many different ways. So we could say at one end of the spectrum, Christians in time, certain times and places have been a persecuted minority. They've had almost no political power, even sometimes having to practice their faith in secret. At the other end of the spectrum, Christians have been the dominant power, right? controlling government and society uh, almost completely. Right? And then Christians have lived in every kind of situation in between. And you might say, well, the best situation would be when the Christians were in control of everything. And maybe, you know, there are a lot of times when that happened, uh, the church became corrupt. The church became too involved in, in worldliness and money and things like that. And the church became corrupt. There's always been, though, based on Jesus' teaching, a principle of distinction of two spheres of power or responsibility. One is the, uh, the civil sphere, that, or sometimes called the temporal sphere, in which properly instituted government uh, is responsible for things, like I said, like roads and, 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 you know, and, and economics and things like that, right? And then there's always been the spiritual sphere, the salvation of souls, moral formation, which God has entrusted especially to the authority of bishops and priests. And so those, those spheres are distinct. There's distinct competence in those spheres, but they also, of course, overlap because they involve the same people. People have the need, their earthly needs, their spiritual needs. Ideally, that those two authorities work together. 
Many of Jesus' listeners were probably not happy with the way he answered the question. Many of them were longing for, uh, for freedom from the Roman government. And so they wanted, wanted him to be a revolutionary who would say, don't pay your taxes, right? No, in fact, we will overthrow the Roman government. This was their hopes for the Messiah. Beat the Romans, establish a kingdom like David had, but even better, not only ruling over Israel, but over the whole world. That's what they were hoping for and expecting. And having this kind of political, earthly power. That's not what Jesus did. So what was Jesus up to? Jesus comes to establish the kingdom of God on earth, right? But rather than just through power, compel people to do certain things, right? Jesus wants to uh, win their love. So his is, is not a top-down, top force, forcing approach, but rather uh, grace from above that we accept that changes our hearts first. Then our first our hearts, then our actions, individually, in groups, and then eventually institutions, right? So it took a while for Christian influence to eventually eliminate the institution of slavery, for example, and many other things. It's a slow way of doing it. It's the way that Jesus chose, right? It took many years before, uh, before the Roman Empire became favorable to Christianity. Now, shortly um, after St. Paul was arrested uh, and before his second arrest and execution, he wrote a letter to his friend Timothy, who was bishop of the church in Ephesus. And he tells Timothy to pray for those in authority kings and, and worldly rulers, but he has a specific intention. And that intention is so that the church can live in peace and grow in holiness. It's a very interesting, you know. Now, of course, we as Christians, I think, have a lot to offer policymakers in terms of the right moral principles on which our laws should be based. And certainly we should advocate for those things. But the most important thing is that we have the freedom to continue to preach the gospel, to do works of mercy, to form people. And why is that important? Because as long as we have that freedom, what do we have a good chance of doing? <laughs> right? Converting more and more people and accomplishing what Jesus wants, right? That, that change of heart that then leads to a change of action and then leads to a change of institutions. And so we get, I think, too focused sometimes on political objectives. I know when I was a young man, you know, many of you know I was a lawyer, and that was my plan from the age of six or seven, but that was only a step in the plan, because I wanted to then become a U.S. Senator at some point, right? Because right. if I was involved in making laws, everything would be great, right? Um, so part of my, uh, part of my entering um, formation for the priesthood was this deep conviction that God gave me that... Um, that that was only a very superficial thing. There were much more fundamental changes that were needed. That, you know, politics, you know, we get focused on that and what the laws are and who's in office, but really that's downstream of culture, right? Our, our values and the things that matter to us. And that is downstream of religion. And even atheists have their own religion, right? All people have their own worldview, their own sense of what ultimately matters, what is right and wrong. So ultimately, that's, that's what needs to be renewed. Huh? And so that's, that's one of the ways that God led me instead to, uh, 
to serve him as a priest in the church. St. Thomas More was, uh, has, was the right-hand man of the king, King Henry VIII in England. He had great power. Um, but something happened. The king decided to pull the Christians in England away from the universal church. And Thomas More could not go along with that. So he resigned his position. Eventually, he was arrested. And eventually, he was executed. And right before he died, he said something which I think we can all say, although we may not use the word king, but uh, the sense in which um, we, want, we want to be good citizens, we want to be, we want to be first citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Huh? He said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. <laughs>